It's hard to believe, but there once really was a glass ceiling in rock and roll. That is, before the teenage members of the Runaways in the mid-70s released four albums for a major label, toured the world, and broke down barriers that would open the way for girl bands and female rockers to follow. This rise and fall is documented in my guest Evelyn McDonald's new book, Queens of Noise, The Real Story of the Runaways. Evelyn McDonald is an assistant professor of journalism and new media at Loyola Marymount University. She's been writing about popular culture and music for over 20 years. She's the author of four previous books. She was the pop music critic for the Miami Herald and a senior editor at The Village Voice. And it is my pleasure to welcome Evelyn McDonald here to talk about Queens of Noise, the real story of the Runaways. Evelyn, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Great to have you here. What was the state of, of women in rock and roll prior to the mid-70s? Well, um, in rock bands, which you know is a tricky category to define, um, but you know, in terms of, of bands where the women played their own instruments, there were some groundbreaking pioneers, such as Goldie and the Gingerbread, Fanny, Isis, um, but they did not have um, a lot of success getting signed, selling to audiences, getting a radio play, getting press. Um, so the Runaways broke down a lot of those kind of barriers. They were also very young, so um, they were 16, basically, when they started. So uh, that was also um, you know, a bit of, of a novelty um, and also just uh, really incredible that girls that young were doing something that um, even women older than them had not been able to achieve. Of course, there had been the girl group movement before, uh, which was a vocal movement and, you know, which, you know, I think some of the greatest pop music of all time. So I, I don't want to sell those, those, those women short. Um, but it was a little different. Those kinds of bands were different in terms of... Um, they, uh, you know, were singers. Uh, they did not play their own instruments. Um, often they did not write their own material. Um, so the Runaways uh, progressed in a different vein. How much of, of the Runaways' success and the attention they got when, when they formed in the mid-70s and 75, how much of that came from the fact that the timing was just right, given what else was going on with rock and roll at that point? Well, there certainly were other interesting um, things afoot. Uh, Patti Smith was out um, making waves, in, uh, particularly in, in New York, but had actually come to L.A. and um, really inspired a lot of the people who came to embrace the Runaways. Um, there's Deborah Harry with Blondie. And there were the New York Dolls um, prior to the Runaways who um, were men, sort of playing with semi-drag with women's garb, um, sort of doing what the Runaways did from a male perspective. Um, so, And then, of course, there were the Ramones, who the Runaways ended up touring with. So there was this interesting transition from the sort of hard rock, classic rock scene into glam metal, which had more of a pop element um, and in which there was a lot of people playing with gender roles and gender iconography. Um, and then, you know, punk was just starting to emerge. And, you know, the Runaways were really one of those important transitional figures to punk that, that don't often get recognized as such. Who were they and how did they come together? They were, the, the most famous incarnation was called the Fabulous Five. So I generally say they were five girls. They went through various incarnations. There was a trio 
Um, and then there was later a quartet. But the Fabulous Five was um, Joan Jett, who most people know and and love. Um, the sing- went on to fame as the singer of I Love Rock and Roll and Bad Reputation and many other great rock anthems. She was one of the founding members as the singer and guitarist and um, songwriter, rhythm guitarist. Then Sandy West was the drummer. Sheree Curry became the lead singer. Lita Ford became the um, lead guitar player. And Jackie Fox was the bass player in The Fabulous Five. How did they come together? It was two of them. It was was Sandy West and Joan Jett that really came together first. Yes, and they were brought together by a extraordinary individual named Kim Fowley, who was a semi-legend in the music industry based in, in Hollywood, had had a number of minor hits, worked with artists, around the globe, really. He spent some time in, in Europe also um, working with bands and musicians there as a sort of jack-of-all-trades, songwriter, producer, publicist, manager, um, and also recorded his own music. And he was the one who really had this idea, hey, how come there are no all-girl rock and roll bands? Or you know, He didn't know that there was Fanny and Isis, but um, he wanted something a little edgier, a little younger, uh, maybe a little sexier, and he was looking for some some women to um, make up this band. And he met Joan and Sandy separately, and he put them in contact with each other. And Joan took four buses from her home in the north side of Los Angeles to Sandy's, clear down in Orange County, um, and they jammed in in Sandy's uh, rec room bedroom, and that was the birth of the Runaways. And Kim Fowley says later that he didn't really put them together. He just had this idea and introduced them to each other. How apocryphal is that? How true is that? Well, you know, at various times, Kim will either say the band, you know, he was the band. He made the band. There was no runaways without them. And in fact, he tried to um, have different incarnations of the group without any of those founding members later that flopped tremendously. So clearly he needed these these women's talent. Um, so sometimes he'll take all credit and sometimes he will defer and admit that they were talented women. Um, and he did play a really important role. I mean, he did have the idea. I mean, they all had the idea um, and they were aware of him. Um, and he couldn't, you know, he couldn't create their talent and their charisma. But he did write a lot of their songs and he did get them in the studio and he did get them a record deal. Um, so he, you know, he, and he was definitely a colorful figure. Um, he also treated them really badly and um, was very profane and vulgar and was older than them and um, would be what we would now call sexual harassment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and at the time, this was not seen as so crazy, but I think it was very hard on some of the girls. Some of the original members of the band um, did leave really driven out by Kim. Michael Steele was the first bass player uh, and singer. She left and later became a bangle. Talk a little bit about how they got started. They they were playing clubs and small clubs in L.A. initially. Right. Actually, their first gigs were, one was um, at a house party in the South Bay and Torrance um, area of Los Angeles, and that was immortalized in the film The Runaways. Um, so they did some sort of gigging um, in the, more obscure areas, and then they had their Hollywood debut at the Whiskey A-Go-Go, the infamous Whiskey A-Go-Go, where they really became almost like the house band. They played there often and attracted large crowds, and Joan lived across the street from 
from the whiskey. Um, and th- then they played the Starwood. They played a lot of the, the classic L.A. venues at that time. They were really one of the biggest bands in L.A. in the mid-70s. Um, you know, Van Halen was just starting out, and Kim wrote some songs for Van Halen. And, um, you know, it, uh, and the punk scene was just starting, and they became involved in that, too. What was the initial critical reaction to them? The initial critical reaction was sort of amused, um, tolerant, even accepting and liking them. Um, and that, after the first album, um, there became a bit of a backlash. And there were some actually very vicious reviews. Even the, you know some of the positive reviews was be very condescending and patronizing, like, oh, these are girls who can actually play their instruments. Wow, who knew that girls could actually play their instruments? You know, very um, sexist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there, then there were some reviews that were incredibly hostile, um, misogynist. I can't say them on the air. Mm-hmm. Um, but there were some mean things. And even, even um, self-respecting critics called them bimbos. So uh, huh? they, they, had, they had a very hard row to... To Ho, they, uh, the, you know, even they were treated as novelties. Um, they uh, were seen as just the playthings of Kim Fally. They really had a tough time proving themselves. And how did they prove themselves? How did they get beyond this kind of criticism and this perception of just being a novelty? By playing their butts off. <laughs> And, I mean, they toured for for young women who hadn't completed high school mostly, they did GEDs. Um, they were out on the road across North America to Europe, all the way to Japan. Um, and when people saw them, even those critics who were skeptical generally had to begrudgingly say that they put on a really great show and, and uh, hey, they could play their instruments. Um, but, you know, to a certain degree, they never really did convince people. Um, you know, they never made it in the United States. They were they were big in Japan. Um, they were big in some foreign countries. They got a lot of press attention in England and in the U.S. Um, but they never had the kind of success that they needed to go on. And, they, and they've really been, you know, they're not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. They've been neglected by a lot of the history books. What was their popularity in Japan, which was perhaps the the penultimate part of their popularity? What was that all about? Well, Japan loved and loves American rock bands. Uh, They like bands who put on a show, who have a kind of pop rock feeling. Um, So bands like Kiss uh, were already big in Japan, and Cheap Trick, subsequent to The Runaways, had their breakthrough success with a live Japan album. Um, Susie Quattro was already big in Japan, so they already had embraced one woman who was this tough rock figure. And the Japanese fans just got The Runaways. They um, understood that um, dressing up in these sort of sexy superheroine costumes was uh, just part of the game. Um, They didn't look down at it as maybe some of the more serious American critics did. And for Japanese, Japanese women in particular really embraced the runaways. I think they appreciated the kind of strong, sexy uh, persona that the runaways projected and that maybe they didn't get to project in, in their daily lives. So 
of course, the men the men loved them too. Um, maybe sometimes in, in different ways. They were very fetishized in, in the Japanese magazines. There were some pretty intense photos of particularly Cherie Curry um, in her corset and, you know, what, what were really girly pinup magazines. Um, so they, you know, they had hit records in Japan. They they only did one tour there, but they had screaming fans. They played, uh, they were on TV. Um, they played some, some big concerts. They played, I think, eight gigs. They really got to feel that that Beatlemania when they were there, mm-hmm. and they recorded their best album there, the, the Live in Japan album. Talk a little bit about how their albums did here in the states. They recorded what four albums? They recorded four studio albums and then the live album, but the live album was never uh, officially released in the United States. Um, so uh, the albums, while they did get some press, barely. Uh, the first two albums barely dented the charts. Uh, they were something, you know, in the lower, uh, like 170 something. I think was the highest they they ever got. And then the last two albums didn't didn't make the charts at all. They um, they barely got radio play. And this was, of course, before MTV. Um, I think that if MTV had been around when the Runaways mm-hmm. uh, were together, it could have been a different story. I think you know MTV really embraced a lot of girl bands, the, the Go Go's and Joan Jett and Lita Ford went on to full of success, partly based on their videos. And then of course the whole hair metal scene, which in a lot of ways the hair metal scene was a tribute to the Runaways, um, and some of those people were very influenced by by Kim Fowley and his bands. So it wasn't long before divisions started to form within the group about what kind of music they really did. Right. So you have to remember that they weren't necessarily an organic band in the sense that they didn't grow up together. They didn't live next to each other. They were basically brought together by Kim Fowley. Um, and they had pretty different musical tastes coming into the band, which can be good. And a lot of bands thrive off of that. Um, and I think it was good for the Runaways for a while. But as they went through a lot of difficulties with the press, with their management, um, with being treated poorly on the road. Um, it caused a lot of stress within the band, and they fractured along musical lines. Lita Ford and Sandy West were, from the beginning, more into sort of hard rock, heavy metal. Um, they bonded over playing Deep Purple at their first ever rehearsal together. Um, and Joan Jett was really getting more and more into punk rock. Um, so by the by, their last album, they were not seen, uh, should I say, ear to ear, <laughs> on on musical differences. You know, if they'd had success, they probably would have um, been able to manage. But Sandy and Lita wanted to go in a different direction, and and basically the band split up. And it wasn't long after that that it really just completely fell apart. Yeah, yeah, and you know, and by that time there was some pretty heavy um, drug and alcohol use among members, and they'd already lost Cherie Curry and Jackie Fox, so the Fabulous Five had already fallen apart. They were down to a quartet, and I, I think that the third album, their third studio album, Waiting for the Night, that the quartet recorded is is really a great album. It has some of their, their best songs. Um, maybe the production isn't as so great, but the songs are, are really, really good. Uh, but by then, the, the record label had given up on them. They'd fired Kim Fowley, um, and so 
um, as difficult as he had become and kind of an albatross around their shoulders. He was also their champion and their cheerleader and, and someone who garnered them a lot of press and, and attention. Um, so they were really just, they were trying to really, they were working really hard. They toured the country with the Ramones, um, but they just, they just couldn't get a break and, and um, they turned to drug and alcohol and that just made things worse. And after Kim Fowley left, they lost their record deal as well. Yes. Yeah, Mercury Mercury gave up on them. So their last album um, was initially, again, not released in the United States, was later um, uh, released under a different title by, by Rhino Records. Mercury internationally, um, some of the uh, European uh, branches still supported them. Um, so it, it was released overseas, um, and I think in Canada... Uh, and I have to admit, the fourth album is pretty atrocious. <laughs> <laughs> and they, There's they, only a couple of good songs in it. They, 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 talk about um, their last concert that they did together at the Cow Palace in uh, New Year's Eve of 1978. Um, well, by that time, they were on to their, depending how you count it, third, fourth, fifth bass player, um, Laurie McAllister, who was probably their, their best bass player and really fit in with the band, but it was just, just too late by the time um, she joined. And yeah, that, that was their swan song. I think um, they, didn't, they didn't announce that it was their last show. Um, they didn't announce for a couple months later that they were um, heading their separate ways. Um, so people didn't necessarily know what was, was going off. I mean, unfortunately, the, the runways sort of they didn't go out in a blaze of glory. It wasn't like the Sex Pistols last show in San Francisco. Yeah. They sort of petered, petered out and dissipated and um, started doing their own things. And obviously, you know, Lita, and Joan, Lita Ford and Joan Jett went on to um, Bigger and Brighter Pastors. What is their enduring legacy, do you think? Having written this, having looked at their history, what do you think that they're most remembered for? Well, they're still most remembered for their first single, Cherry Bomb. That's still the song that people most know, which is, you know, it is a great song, and it does capture the way that they toyed with sexuality um, and um, had a great glam boogie beat. Um, and, that, you know, that was a song that was written for Cherie Curry, um, and which declared herself the Cherry Bomb. Uh, but they really had an influence on a lot of uh, a lot of girl bands who saw them as showing that you could be tough and sexy and still play your instrument um, and travel the world and get out of high school and not um, be forced into the usual roles that women um, were forced into, whether in bands or or um, being housewives or. <laughs> Um, they definitely presented a different kind of role model for women. And, you know, to this day, there's a saying, you know, what would Joan Jett do? Um, taken off from the, the bumper sticker, what would Jesus do? Right. I mean, people really look up to her. And like I say, they were also a pioneer on, you know, not just girl bands, but on the hair metal scene and on the punk bands. Joan Jett produced the Germs uh, first and only studio album. How did young girls their age look upon them at the time? Mixed. Definitely, um, people had mixed feelings about the Runaways. So um, they inspired a lot of women in LA to start playing instruments 
And in the punk scene that followed, women played a very strong role as not just front women, um, but as players. Um, that was true for punk in general, but I, I interviewed a number of women who said, yes, that the, seeing the Runaways on stage um, inspired them to uh, pick the instrument. Um, on the other hand, uh, the fact that they, uh, Cherie Curry wore a corset and their image was very sexualized, some women felt that that was demeaning. Um, and, for instance, Lisa Robinson, who was the music critic a music critic for Cream Magazine, um, a very influential music writer at the time, uh, was very offended by the way that they presented. And she had a kind of New Yorker's grudge against, against California girls. But other punk bands in England also saw them as being kind of um, retro and not as progressive as their own groups. You know, the slits would... or um, the raincoats would would become. So you know it was it wasn't um, it wasn't they weren't just empowering. It was complicated. How much of the problem was also that they were from California? Talk a little bit about that New York California split. I mean, you talk about they toured with Ramones, who were certainly very New York, and they came up at a time when there was so much focus on so many of these bands coming out of New York. Right, right. So. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, you know, always, uh, the New York, California rivalry, New York looking down its nose at California culture of, of all sorts. Um, and the runaways certainly suffered from that, particularly in the media. Um, you know, for the fans, not so much. I mean, their first CBGB's show, the line was out the door. You couldn't get in, um, really drew a large crowd and, um, when they played uh, three years later, uh, about three years later, um, opening or playing with the Ramones, co-headlining, but they played before the Ramones, they, some, some critics said they blew the Ramones off the stage and that people uh, really, really appreciated them. Um, so, you know, classic, like, the fans get it, the, the critics don't, and I say that as a music critic myself, I'm... <laughs> Sure, there's many times the fans have gotten it before I've, I've figured out what's going on. Um, London, uh, you know, London uh, has more of a fascination with Los Angeles. Um, I, I quote uh, a great English architecture critic, Rainer Bannon, um, and his love affair with Los Angeles quite a bit in the book. So the British press, on the other hand, gave the Runaways some of their earliest and, and most consistent write-ups. Um, and fortunately, there was also an L.A. underground press that was very supportive. Evelyn McDonald, the book is Queens of Noise, The Real Story of the Runaways. It's just out from DeCapo Press. Evelyn, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you so much, Jeff. I appreciate it. <laughs>